This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul News. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a question, reach out to us at podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please take a few minutes to tell us how we're doing. There's a survey link in the show description this month. We'd very much appreciate your feedback. If you enjoy this podcast, you might like to receive our weekly maintenance stories where we talk about uh, once a week, we send out an email uh, talking about one of the more interesting things that has happened uh, to uh, with one of our maintenance clients. If you want to get on the list, simply text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. That's text SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and you'll get on our list. I was borescoping my cylinders this weekend because I'm doing a condition inspection on my Skybolt, and I have one cylinder that's low compression. I... Uh, obviously low compression. I can feel it when I pull the prop through. And I'm not rushing to pull the cylinder or anything like that, but I was looking for a nice smoking gun in there and everything looks fine. There's no scoring on the side of the piston. There's a healthy amount of oil in the bottom, like all the other <laughs> cylinders, you know. I mean, the valves well. look fine. The valves move up and down smoothly. And so I'm like, well, I'm just going to record it and put it back together and go fly it and just keep an eye on it, you know. But... Um, it, it, what I wanted to mention, though, was taking those darn pictures, you have to stand on your head sometimes with a borescope and try to, like, twist around. And sometimes I feel all bent up trying to just get that right angle. It's, why can't it be easier? Getting that little gooseneck in there and getting the lighting just right and, and then trying to snap the picture on the... Wait, wait, wait. So, okay, you can't be complaining about a $200 borescope. Because it wasn't so many years ago, we didn't even have borescopes. So what did you use? A, we didn't a use anything. Mirror? <laughs> well, no, no kidding. No, so I had an optical borescope, but you know we didn't have all this information about burn valves and all that kind of stuff. This is all relatively new. So in in my worldview, even if it's a horrible thing to use this borescope, it's a phenomenal thing to use a borescope. Just don't ever get the borescope that has the monitor built in to yeah. the scope in because then you do as you as you rotate the borescope your picture rotates and, and then you get yeah. all contorted but yeah. you know i like the ones where it displays on the computer that's sitting on top of the engine and 
rotate it all around. We you know, and I practice like checking my fillings and things oh, like yeah. that. And, Absolutely. You know, just trying to make sure I can get that right angle. But it just seems like the exhaust valve is always in the wrong spot. And I can't quite get that picture I want. But. You'll you'll get it. Do two or three a day for a few months and it'll it'll fall right in there. We bore scoped one today. And I'm making sure that the owner's not anywhere close where he can hear me. So he, he took off yesterday with his brand new engine after I've put a couple of hours on it and somehow forgot to push the mixture all the way in on that initial takeoff. And CHTs went to places they should never go. So um, we borescoped it this morning just to make sure there weren't any like holes in the pistons and all that. And fortunately, it was good, but we, you know, we, we did that thing of getting all the, we looked at all the cylinders and we were mostly looking at piston tops and then the, the top of the cylinder looking for any transfer of aluminum or melted spots or rounded corners on the pistons and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, you just, you just do a whole bunch. Okay. I'll get out there and practice. I'll tell you what you should do because you, you have a school or you're mm-hmm. at a school. They have cylinders mm-hmm. sitting around with valves in them. <laughs> yeah. Put the, put the scope in there where you can see on see, the other yeah. side and say, yeah. oh, it, yeah, it kind of works like this. And here's how much angle you need on that. On that That's actually a great idea. Yeah, that would Ooh, be. Wait, yeah. we, are we Paul recording this? Great idea. Yeah. I want that recorded. I'm going to play no, it back for is, Helen. This is getting edited out, that part. Oh, Helen, would, I don't want Helen to hear that. She'll never where, forgive me. Where is she? I think I'm, uh, I don't have a way to record this. I came across a service instruction from Lycoming that said that you could blast the inside of your of your cylinder walnut with walnut shells. shells. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my god! Yeah, that's a pretty famous service bullet. Is it really? It's pretty ingenious. I don't, I don't know that. How do you get them out? <laughs> well, you suck them, so you have a, a vacuum on <laughs> on one exhaust, like the exhaust port. You drop the exhaust, and then you're you're blowing the the walnut shells in one end and sucking them out the other end. And I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> we used to do this on the Rolls-Royce Dart engines we had on the Hawker Sidley at the commuter airline I worked for. They would always do it at night. And uh, they had a little funnel. The guy would crawl up on top of the engine while the thing was running and pour them in. And it would all blast out the tail. And it'd be like 40 foot long, you know, big fire blast out the tail of the engine. We always, you know, did it at two o'clock in the morning. And all the flight clues would come from, from there. Mm, to watch. Uh, yeah, to yeah, watch. And lawn chairs think- and. I don't coolers. think Lycoming wanted this walnut shell thing done while the engine was running. I think it's <laughs> it does it's way, say to disconnect the battery. <laughs> it's way more dramatic. It's way more dramatic if the engine's running. I mean, I know they throw walnut shells into jet engines to clean the blades that's, off. That's the same thing. That's, that's, a, that's what we were doing. Yeah, yeah. But um, I'd never heard it. I just happened to cross this. I had it in my collection of service instructions. I was like, wow, that's pretty psychedelic. I've, I've never seen it done. Our first question is from John, who wants to know if good compressions can be a bad thing. Go ahead, John. Thank you, Colleen, and thank you for taking my, my question. I enjoy your your podcast and have learned a lot from them, especially your recurring theme that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> the Excel file I sent you shows the compressions from the logbook entries for the annuals of my 1977 Grumman Tiger over the past 11 years. The engine is a Lycoming 0360A4K. I've been surprised to see that the compression of this engine, which is now 70 hours past TBO, has been trending upward over the past five years. It seems great, but it also seems a little strange, and I wonder if an upward trend in compression could indicate anything negative. 
You'll also see a big drop in the compression between 2015 and 2016. I changed shops that year when I moved the plane from Albuquerque to San Diego. The same Albuquerque shop did all the annuals from 2015 and prior years, and then the same San Diego shop has done all the annuals from 2016 on. I think maybe there's a, there's a difference in the technique or equipment between the two shops that might explain the drop in 2016. But then year by year, the compression has been recovering, and you can see that the 2021 compression in San Diego is basically back up to what the Albuquerque shop recorded seven years ago. I've heard the quote, you aren't getting older, you're getting better, but I didn't know it could apply to aircraft engines. Do you think there's anything to be concerned about with this compression record? Self-healing, that's what it is. <laughs> so I wish we could put error bars around all these numbers. Oh, right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> let, let me point out a couple things. First of all, it is absolutely normal for compressions to gyrate wildly. The compression test is a terrible test with more noise than signal on it. I've got a wonderful PowerPoint slide that I use in some of my presentations that, that came from uh, Continental Motors, where they were doing an endurance run on an IO550 in their test cell. And every 50 hours, they would stop the engine to change the oil and do a compression test, and then they'd run it for another 50 hours in test cell and they graphed out the compressions. And it's, it, was, it was absolutely amazing. Over the, over the, I guess it was probably 300 hours that they ran this engine uh, in the test cell at high power. The compression readings were all over the place. Um, and this was a brand new, brand new engine. In addition to the test being fundamentally flawed and having a tremendous amount of noise on it, technique is extremely important. Uh, different AMPs are going to get different readings just because they manipulate the prop differently. It makes a huge difference whether the compression test is done hot or cold. Uh, in fact, in in my airplane, which is a which is a, a twin, I have twelve cylinders, and if I bring the airplane into the hangar right after a flight and start a compression test. You know, the first cylinder I test is going to be hot. The 12th cylinder I test is going to be pretty close to ice cold. So I always try to test the worst ones first, but <laughs> to cheat. <laughs> to cheat. Um, but it just, and, and, and then, of course, the, the gauges vary quite a bit. And that's why Continental doesn't give you a specific uh, number to be the no-go threshold. Like Lycoming says 60, but... Continental doesn't do that. They they give you a, a master orifice tool, which is actually nowadays usually part of the compression tester itself as the reference uh, because different gauges are going to have different no-go thresholds. So I just wouldn't obsess about these compression trends. Uh, they don't mean that much. Uh, we uh, rely much more heavily on on using the borescope to determine the condition of the cylinder, where you can basically optically climb inside the cylinder and look around and see what's going on. Th then the compression test, which is like a World War II-ish, probably before that uh, You know, uh, I have a chart. 
I have a chart that looks exactly like this chart from the first 20 years of ownership of my Cardinal because I'm a numbers person and I couldn't help but record all these numbers thinking there would be some, <laughs> you know, coded pattern or secret <laughs> message in them. And I gave up after 20 years because like Mike's saying, they were all over the board and they did not track the health of the engine as far as I could tell. Right. By the way, Colleen crunches numbers for a living. So this is like an obsession with her. But these particular numbers, like I say, there's kind of more noise than there is signal on them. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Okay. What I was, what I, that's kind of what I thought, but I just wanted to make sure you wouldn't think there was something stopped up or in there someplace that was causing that. No. I did switch from synthetic back to Philips XE oil back in 2016 also, but I don't think that would have anything to do with it. So I just wanted to make sure I wasn't missing something. I had a uh, 250 Comanche serial number 317 for a 14 years, and its compression steadily improved throughout its life. <laughs> and around 2,000 hours or so, it was like 80 over 80 on all of them, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, there's no telling. The oil rigs were probably completely packed. There's there's no way there was going to be any air get past those pistons. Just impossible. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the comments and I'll try to apply some more and do more frequent oil changes and I won't worry about the compression. And I will take a look at the oil consumption year by year and see if there's any hints there. Yeah. Thanks for calling, John. John. Like seeing your data. Okay, see ya. Bye-bye. So our next question comes from someone who we all know would be absolutely brilliant the best caller we've had because his name is Paul. So just to throw that out there. <clears throat> but more importantly, I think Paul needs to vent just a little bit. So go ahead. This is a pleasure to be here. I've, I've listened to you guys and I just love this kind of stuff, but I'm, uh, I haven't been flying for too long. I, 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 I got my ticket when I was 58 years old and I've been flying for about 10 years and I've recently retired. And oddly enough, I've been in the, uh, healthcare advocacy for my entire career, some of that in the pharmaceutical industry, which I believe got its pricing practices probably from a guy who was a pilot or in the <laughs> aviation industry, because this is just, here, this is, this is what's killing me. You guys will be able to explain this to me because no one else can. I'm trying to figure out why an engine for a single engine airplane costs 38 to 40 odd thousand dollars when we're talking about technology that is 80 plus years old, cannot have any active patents. I'm, I'm, you're going to tell me if I'm wrong about this. There can't have any active patents. There is, I just can't imagine why we, why can't we do something simple like clone a Continental 0470 and, or, you know, whatever, you're, you're, clone it manufacture it, put it together and get it certified and sell it at a decent discount and all live happily ever after. I mean, pharmaceutical industry, I mean, you, we, we make drugs based on cloning technology. I mean, since 1986, all the manufacturer has to do is to demonstrate that they can make a pill that is within 20% bioequivalency of the standard and they can sell it for whatever discount they want to sell it. But with aircraft engines and everything related to aircraft, this, you, you just, it doesn't seem to be possible. I, I, if I could find just a, I mean, people in the, people at the airport tell me, oh, it's got to do with liability, and I can't believe that. But I'm thinking, so I'm thinking if somebody would at least give me a reasonable explanation, 
why this is so, I would get over it. But no, I'm you not won't. over it. No, you won't. You're not. You're not going to get over it. None of us have. Yeah. We're not going to get over you, it. You know what you're suggesting has been done. The thing is that it doesn't lower the price any, because the problem, the reason these aircraft engines are are so expensive, there's really I think three elements that go into it. One is that it is extremely expensive to get a, an engine. FAA certified. It takes years. It takes millions of dollars. And so anybody who goes through that agony, first of all, has to be very well financed. And then they have to recover all of those costs in part of the engine. The, the second reason is that uh, the production rate on these things is very, very low. It's a very tiny market. If you ever go visit the Lycoming factory, the Continental factory, I mean, you'd be amazed. There's like no automation anywhere. It's all done by hand. It's very small volume. And then the third, uh, and I know you discounted this, but you shouldn't, is the extremely high cost of, of liability insurance that these guys have to carry because they're getting sued right and left. And this has gotten significantly worse since the mid-90s, when uh, Congress passed the General Aviation Revitalization Act, which put a, an 18-year statute of limitations, basically, they call it a statute of repose, on a product liability, which took the aircraft manufacturers off the hook on most of the fleet, because most of the airplanes we fly are pretty old. So all the lawsuits are now redirected towards the engine manufacturers and everybody else who makes parts for the airplane and even maintenance shops because you can't sue Cessna or Piper or Mooney or anybody anymore unless the airplane's like really, really new, you know, less than 18 years old. So the cost of, of product liability is, is huge. And, I, and I've gotten to sort of see this up close and personal because I do some expert witness work in litigation. Um, I've, I've done work defense work for Continental and uh, for Ram Aircraft and a number of people in the engine business, they're getting, they just get sued right and left. It doesn't have anything, it doesn't matter whether it's their fault, most accidents are pilot error, but it's the hardware guys that always get sued. And now it's much more likely to be the engine manufacturer than the airframe manufacturer because of, because of GARA. So I think those three elements, the extremely high cost of certification the very, very low production rate and the extremely high cost of protecting yourself against product liability all add up to these ridiculous prices that we pay for this stuff. Just to give you an idea about volume, and certification is crazy. Even if Continental wants to put a different bolt in a case half, they have to go through a whole experiment, in other words, to prove that that bolt is okay. Even if it's a better bolt, they just they can't just say this is a better bolt. They usually have to put it in situation and prove that it's a better bolt on an engine. And that's hugely expensive. But in Tennessee, we have uh, car manufacturers just right down the road in Nashville. And I'm pretty certain that if you count all of the blue cars that they make this week, will exceed the total number of aircraft and aircraft engines built in the world this year. And that just, it's, a, it's huge. It's just a huge difference. So all the setup cost to build that one engine or a cylinder or an exhaust valve 
whatever it is, doesn't get spread over hundreds of thousands of components. It gets spread over thousands of components. It's a completely different world. And there are some providers like um, Grove uh, Brakes and Gears or Whirlwind Props that um, are choosing to do new designs, but they're sticking with the experimental world because the certification just doesn't interest them at all. It just, they could never recover their costs. Right. And, and in the experimental world, there are really cheap engines, you know, Aero Vs and stuff like that, 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 that are, were built strictly for experimental market and never are going to be certified. And, and they're just a whole lot less expensive. They're not. They're not going to be as inexpensive as car engines typically, um, be, because it's a low volume market. But at least they get rid of the certification burden. Just compare like a, a Dynon flight, uh, you know, display, uh, a glass cockpit display, experimental versus certified. You know, they're starting to certify some of these systems, but the price difference. If you just go to Aircraft Spruce and look at the certified versus the not certified version, we're talking two to three times as expensive for the certified part, and they're pretty much the same part. Yeah, the, the, the certification process is mind-bogglingly slow and expensive and bureaucratic, and it's, it's just really horrible. Well, that's, and, and also, isn't that, I mean, if you, if you want to do, I mean, first of all, this is like a chicken and an egg thing, like I think. You can't get a cheap engine don't, because you don't sell enough of them, or you can't get a reasonably priced engine because you don't sell enough of them. If you made enough of them, you could sell them for less on a higher volume. This is a big kind of a crapshoot, I think. But so, but but also focusing on uh, certification review. I mean, which is more critical, or which is more likely to result in a consumer fatality: a defective medication or a defective airplane engine? Even whether you know whether or not. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about this from a liability perspective. I'm talking about it from from a uh, a regulatory perspective to say, all right, we can clone computers, we can clone drugs, we can clone things that have, that if they go bad, the results are catastrophic. I mean, you could have entire tens of thousands of people affected by a defective medication. If the, if the bioequivalence is twice what it's supposed to be, people have all sorts of adverse reactions and you know the lawsuits escalate and everything else. But the certification standard through the FDA is relatively straightforward. I mean, we, when I was in the industry, we pushed for what was called a, a government standards defense, that if you did what the government required in order to be for it to be certified, you'd be essentially immune from punitive damages, not compensatory damage, but punitive damages. So it got some, you know, it, it's a hard fight to win. But it seems to me that the battle here to be won is with the certification process, because in every other industry, to me, it seems uh, that there's a lot more at stake, at least in the number of lives affected. Uh, but the regulatory process is not as wildly expensive and, and uh, circuitous as in, in aviation. Well, Paul, you know, the, there's, the good news is that the FAA has actually been moving in the right direction in in a, in a lot of areas. They did a massive overhaul of Part 23 to make it easier to uh, certify new airframes and to allow more innovation, things like electric planes and stuff, which weren't even part of the certification regs before the overhaul. They've made a real effort to streamline the certification of, of, of non-critical avionics 
uh, and, and a lot of experimental stuff is now starting to get certified because they've, they've simplified things. The place that they have done absolutely no simplification is Part 33, which is the certification of engines. That's an ancient set of regs that hasn't been changed for a long, long time. It's long overdue. I assume the FAA will eventually get to it. They almost have to because we're, we're getting into a, a, an era where we're going to be starting to have things like electric propulsion and hybrid systems. And Part 33 just doesn't cover that stuff. It only covers piston and turbine. Yeah. Well, so. I appreciate your time. This has been very helpful to me. Well, interesting insights. Hel- helpful, but not encouraging. Us. <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a little venting is good once in a while. Yeah, it is. I feel better already. Thanks, Mike. Not more encouraged. (laughs) It was good to talk to you, Paul. Thanks for calling. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye bye. Our next question is from Abdullah, who uh, is a strange character. He gets a kick out of cleaning airplanes. I don't get it, but I'm glad he's here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. So uh, basically, in my grade 11 year, for reference, I'm going into grade 12 uh, this this coming year. And in my grade 11 year, I decided to do a co-op placement at my local flying club. So uh, uh, when I went there, uh, I saw the planes were a little little dirty. So uh, I said, you know what? Give me the cleaning supplies and let me get to it. Uh, So they – and I had never cleaned a plane before. So they – I said, well, how, how should I clean this? And they said, uh, oh, just pressure wash it, foam it with a uh, foam cannon, and uh, just try not to hit any shiny parts. <laughs> so that's what I did. Uh, and then when it, when it got too greasy, I'd use uh, 99% uh, IPA and, uh, or the WD-40 brand of uh, degreaser. IPA? Is that, is that a beer? A beer, yeah, <laughs> my favorite. Here in Canada, we call uh, that's isopropyl alcohol. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Much cheaper than that, IPA. I've, I've heard of a lot of cleaning fluids, but IPA—that's uh, I haven't heard of that one. Do you drink it first and then just like shake it? Never mind. Sorry. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> that's what we used, and yeah, and but I. I wasn't getting the results I wanted, so I was wondering, is there a better way to do this or just kind of keep going? So I'll, I'll start because I know everybody's got some opinions, but airplane paint is not a lot different than car paint. So paint is not your real concern. You don't want to use anything really aggressive. What we found in our shop, one of the best things to clean airplanes with is Dawn dishwashing liquid. It doesn't hurt anything, and it's really good at degreasing. And you can experiment with ways, uh, percentages of, uh, of how, you know, how strong you're going to put it on the airplane. Some people have used uh, Gojo, the hand cleaner, without the pumice, the smooth stuff. It does pretty good. But there's all sorts of things. I'd be very careful with a pressure washer. Not my favorite uh, thing, especially on flight school airplanes, because more than likely you're going to blast as much paint off of as you do uh, That's happened to dirt. me. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Comes right off. (laughs) Yep. And you're also pressurizing skin edges. Whatever gunk you're spraying off, depending on the angle that your pressure washer is, uh, you're pressurizing gunk in between the skins. And all that gunk, I know you think oil on the belly, it's oil, so therefore it can't corrode. The truth is 
that oil that's on the belly is full of all sorts of nasty acids and stuff in it. And it is actually a cause of corrosion. It is not helping at all. So you do want to get it off. Cleaning airplanes is just all about elbow grease, right? I used to use a toothbrush on the rivets on the belly of the airplane. I don't do that <laughs> oh anymore. Oh I did. I would spend all day and, and yeah, and then the next flight would be dirty again. That sounds OCD to me. <laughs> but yeah, you guys are going to tell me I'm crazy, but I used to use Avgas for the worst stuff. Uh, it's, oh, that works. That it actually, works. Yeah. yeah. Pretty and dangerous, it's, it comes but it works. right out of the airplane and yeah. yeah. Readily and available. I, yeah, and then I would just clean it off with some kind of, you know, uh, more mild or cleaner. But the stubborn stuff, the degreaser stuff, yeah, Avgas. There's a million products out there. I, I carry a, always carry a spray bottle of something called Simple Green Aircraft. Simple Green Aircraft, Which yeah. is uh, formulated to not be nasty to aluminum and stuff. Yep, I, I use that too, yeah. But uh, you said you use WD-40. That's very interesting. I had to um, do a little research on WD-40 because it's produced here in San Diego. Uh, it goes back to 1953 uh, in the DOD world. It was developed by a bunch of uh, chemists. And I've I've read it's mostly baby oil, Vaseline, and the goop inside homemade lava lamps. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that would be very interesting to put on your aircraft. My, and <laughs> somebody told me uh, that the WD stands for water displacement. Water displacement. Is that correct? Yes, that's what it is. Yep. And, and I don't know has, what the 40 stands for. It's the number 40 um, formulation. They finally got it oh. right. Uh, and the actual stuff is all secret. They won't tell you what it is, but that's what the hearsay is. And it has many uh, uses in addition to cleaning aircraft bellies. You can use it to keep flies off of cows. Uh, you can lubricate prosthetic limbs, and you can keep the pigeons from landing on your balcony by spraying with WD-40. Wow. So I think I th I'm going to stock thought, up on this well, stuff. I thought I, they couldn't keep these things secret anymore because they have to issue an MSDS. I now. looked at the MSDS, and it doesn't say, you really it just do says your research. what you do if you get it in your eyes. doesn't you say know? baby uh, oil or anything in there. No, uh, no, no. You know, I, use it, I don't use it on airplanes. I just don't like it around airplanes. And I quit using it on squeaky doors at home because you have to keep using it. You spray it, it evaporates away two weeks later and it squeaks again, which is brilliant because you have to go buy more WD-40. Yeah. It so, also attracts dirt. It's kind of almost it like LPS-3. It's kind of sticky. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, but. So we, um, we use, it's not the, uh, the WD-40 um, like lubricant. Yeah. It's the, like the WD-40 company makes like a, a big gallon uh, degreaser. Oh, uh oh. Yeah, yeah. That probably wouldn't keep the flies off the cows. Yeah. It's it's designed to take WD forty off, in other words. <laughs> it's, it's 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 negative WD forty. WD minus forty. Well, here's what I would suggest. This is a personal suggestion. For overall cleaning, Dawn dishwashing liquid or something very mild like that, because if you're washing like windows and things, they're all plastic and you don't want to wipe them dry. You want to rinse them, get all the dust off first. And that'll do a general, nice general cleaning of the airplane with a scrub brush, a soft bristled scrub brush, and then go back with something more aggressive, uh, aviation green or something like that for the handprints and things that you, because Dawn won't get those kind of things off. And that way, I mean, dishwashing liquid is cheap. Uh, it's easy to come by. You can get it everywhere. That and water 
will take care of an awful lot. And then and you use gentle, the pricey stuff. It is gentle, gentle. on your hands. You know, on match it, tells yes, you that. Yes, because you know, we're really we're concerned soaking. about that. Yep. Yeah. And then once once you've washed the windows with, with Dawn dishwashing liquid, then you have to spray pledge on them. Yes. <laughs> That's right. And he's <laughs> not kidding. Little, it really put works. Put your little apron on when you're cleaning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and wear those Playtex gloves that you can pick up a dime with. Remember? And uh, the, le- the, lemon, the lemon pledge smells better than the other stuff. So. <laughs> but I will tell you, one of my, one of my students at A&P school uh, sidelines cleaning airplanes, and he is busy. And they pay him top dollar for this. You also need to learn to polish airplanes because there's lots of money in that too. But again, it, it's you will get you'll get arthritis at a very early age. It's very backbreaking work, but highly sought after. But we'll pay a lot for you to come down here and do all that, especially if you're actually a, a self-proclaimed neat freak. That's that's just perfect for an airplane cleaner. But don't bring a toothbrush. We don't need a toothbrush. <laughs> yeah. Well. I'll- Soon enough, no, I'll get we, my, uh, my first experience washing uh, one of one of our big birds wow. uh, that, that we just finished uh, a maintenance on. So, yeah. We encourage you to uh, think about starting a franchise operation. Absolutely. Yeah. Extend yeah. your tentacles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Uh, Abdullah, thank you very much for the call. We enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and, Take care. And yep. Best of luck on your enterprise. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Our next question is from Bob, who just wants to fly at 2,500 RPM. Welcome to the show, Bob. What you got? <laughs> well, thank you very much, and uh, thanks for uh, having me on. I fly a 0360, Superior 0360, powered uh, Long Easy. And I've, for the last couple of years, we've been chasing a problem. It, it, it's something that we get around. But at 2,500 RPM, the engine just runs kind of rough. If you add power, it kind of lags before it kind of like catches on and speeds up. It flies beautifully at 2,450. It flies great at 2,600, which has been my solution for the last couple of years. But We've tried pretty much everything. We redid the fuel system. I run, uh, it's got about 450 hours since new. I have dual electronic ignitions. And other than that, it's, that one problem, it's never had uh, any, any other problems with it. And I'm kind of wondering, am, am I a unicorn or is this something <laughs> that kind of happens with, with these engines? People have said, well, maybe it's the butterfly valve position that's creating turbulence. I mean, you know, we've kind of tried everything else. Uh, the timing's good, compression's good, everything. So that's my question. Am I a unicorn? <laughs> I don't see a horn. But, <laughs> no. but I see the title of a podcast. No. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to understand, is this a vibration problem? No, it, it. I mean, not really. It's more of a kind of like a rough running, almost like it feels when you when you lean it excessively, but you're not lean. So you know, in my case, I and and I'm a I'm a to to to, to, to I'm a savvy aviation pro user, and so <laughs> oh, that's what I was going to ask you. If, if you, you have data. engine monitor data, we 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 would like to see that. Uh, particularly 
if you can do a test flight and you know very slowly move the RPM through the range so that we can see the onset and the outset or something of roughness. Uh, but it would be very interesting to look at the engine monitor data and see if there's some sort of combustion anomaly that's going on there. Okay. I uh, I have a G3X, and I yeah. have the full uh, the full monitoring. I yeah. upload my data to, to your service for about the last couple months I, I started it. So I've that's got great. huge amounts of data, but nothing really shows up much in the data. Hmm. I've had you run the, uh, the the detailed analysis, and nothing really shows up. But hmm. it's just kind of rough. And and like I well, said, that, that, if nothing shows up in the data, that just brings me back to a suspicion that it's not a combustion issue. Because if it was, it would it would show up in EGTs or something. And and I'm just wondering whether it's whether it's a some kind of a resonance issue at that particular RPM. I mean, we 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 see all sorts of funny things, and I, I don't have any experience with long easies. I mean, I I know on on the Cessnas, there's certain RPMs when the windshield uh, starts to vibrate because it's got a resonant frequency. And I'm just wondering if there's something with your with your airframe that that has a resonance at that particular RPM. And but that he also said there was a stumble on acceleration that wouldn't be explained by that. Yeah, if you're at 2,500 and you add power, it it won't move, and then all of a sudden it'll kind of take off. Well, you, your your MA4 has an accelerator pump, right? It does. Yeah. MA4-5. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that's the that's the thing that's supposed to stop it from stumbling on throttle up. But if I'm so at 2,450 I... and add power, it doesn't stumble. It just. Is this a fixed pitch prop? Constant speed? Yeah, uh, fixed pitch, three-bladed wooden prop, yeah, in a pusher configuration. So on the uh, Marvel Schebler troubleshooting site, they suggest a couple things that could cause stumble on acceleration which in, at high RPM, which includes a primer line leak. So that would be a rich mixture, not a lean mixture. Also, they said something very odd, and I'm not really sure. It said uh, the pump, the, the linkage might be misaligned. I'm, is that like the rod end that, that is connected to the throttle? I'm not really sure what that means. But it said that could be causing a throttle lag as well at high RPM. So, But that doesn't explain why it doesn't happen at 2,600, mm -hmm. just at yeah, 2,500. You know, you know what occurs to me? What I would love to see is a test flight where you run the engine at, at the bad RPM, where it's, where it's very unhappy, and then you do a series of mixture sweeps at that RPM so that we can kind of see what happens over a range of mixtures. Because if this is has something to do with being too rich or too lean, uh, that we would be able to see it that way. Also, do you have do you uh, record manifold pressure? Uh, sure do. The, the system, yeah, it records every <laughs> second. Manifold so pressure, about 50 things. When you're advancing the throttle, in a good situation, manifold pressure changes. When it's in the bad situation, does it, Manifold pressure change? In other words, are you getting an actual indication that something is happening when you're moving the lever? You know, I I, I don't think I've ever noticed it. I would want I would want to check because there may be a mechanical something that when you're moving the throttle from this position, the throttle has to move a distance before anything actually happens mechanically. Uh, and the manifold pressure would give you an idea of whether 
because that may change before the RPM changes. Okay. This is a th- this is a fixed pitch prop, right? A three bladed fixed pitch. Right. Yeah, three bladed Cato prop. So it should all happen together. So you're saying maybe how the, the way that the throttle cable is fixed or fastened that there's a movement in the cockpit isn't corresponding to a movement at the carb. Yeah, I like mean, at I'm, other settings. I'm just dreaming up thoughts here that maybe when he sits the throttle lever in that position, it has to move a distance before anything happens at the engine. Or, but if he starts earlier, it's going. It's possible something's loose there. And so as sure. he's moving it through a motion, it actually pulls the back and forth. And the other thing that occurs to me is as you change the RPM, you're moving the throttle. So a whole bunch of different things are changing at once. And if we want to figure out which thing it is that's causing the problem, if you set up the airplane, say, at 2,500 RPM, where it's really unhappy, and then you don't touch any engine controls, but you just pull up into a climb and then nose down into a descent, you'd be varying the RPM without varying anything else. So that would kind of indicate whether it really is an RPM problem or whether it is something having to do with certain positions of the throttle butterfly, because we would be isolating the, you know, the different factors. Well, let me try those things and see what, what it comes out with. And and like I said, I'm kind of new with the, the Garmin system, but as you know, it records more data than yeah, you know. It's, 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 awesome. it's great that you have that. And that, I think, is going to be probably the key in, in trying to figure this out. So we don't, have to, we don't have to give Bob the sermon about having engine monitor. That's, no, that's no. refreshing. I, I've listened to all your shows, and I'm on top mm. of all of that. Good job. <laughs> We're getting through. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> well, that was that was great. Yeah, I'd love to hear what you find, Bob. We definitely would love to have you come back and fill us in. Sure, I'll give it a shot and see what happens. Okay, all right. Well, be safe out there, and thanks so much for your question. That was very interesting. Well, thanks. Yeah. See you, Bob. Bye-bye. So our next question comes from Robert. It's my favorite question of the day because it's a single-sentence question. Question. I don't know that we've ever had a single sentence question. So, Robert, go ahead. Give us this really short. You know, people say, I have a quick question for you, implying that the answer is going to be quick. But this is actually a quick question. So, go for it. All right. Thank you, guys. I really enjoy the show. I um, have a Cherokee uh, 140 that we and my wife and I enjoy flying out of Winter Haven here. So, I could use some help on finding out how and when I should use the split switch, uh, master switch. My dad used to fly out of Winter Haven a number of years ago. That's a, that's a cool place to be. So the split switch, it's designed so that if you turn on the alternator, it forces the battery to come on with it because the alternator needs the battery to properly function. But you can turn the battery on by itself, or if they're both on, you can turn the alternator off and just run on the battery. So it's a way to isolate. Aircraft alternators, unlike cars, cars have the regulator built into the alternator, whereas aircraft alternators, the regulator is separate. The regulator is typically mounted on the firewall somewhere, just two separate components. So the one camp says, leave the alternator turned off during start, because if the alternator is rotating and energized, it's creating a drag on the engine. Just like back in school when you had that hand crank and you were turning the generator to light up the light bulbs. Do you remember that? And it's really hard to crank. So 
That's one view. The other view is just leave it on, start the engine. If the starter motor can't handle it, you got a, you got a starting problem. I know there's a lot of debate about which way it should be done. In practicality and in daily operation, I don't think it makes any difference in what you do, except that if you use the split switch and leave the alternator off during start, there's about a 70% probability that you will forget to turn yep. on the other <laughs> side of that switch when you take off. So my recommendation on your airplane, turn them both on at once and don't worry about it. I, I concur. I, th- there are two times that I would consider uh, starting the airplane with the alternator off, the battery on the alternator off. One is if you knew that the battery was very depleted and, and it was really touch and go whether you were going to be able to get the engine started or not. When you, when you turn on the alternator field, it's going to draw somewhere between one and two amps, which is normally not an issue. But if, if, if you were really, really worried that you didn't have enough battery power to get the engine started, uh, I w- might consider leaving the alternator off until you did get the engine started. The other time that you should, um, you should always leave the alternator switch turned off is if you're getting an APU start. If you have external power connected to the airplane, because let's say the battery really did get so low that you can't start. And the reason you want to leave the alternator switch off when an APU is plugged in is because in case some ham-handed line guy got you reverse polarized, if the alternator is on, it's going to blow all of the diodes in the alternator. So you, just to protect the alternator, you want to you, you leave the alternator off until the guy unplugs his cart. But under normal circumstances, I agree 100% with Paul. Put them both on. That way you're not likely to to forget to bring the alternator on. I've always started with both of them on, but I think I was taught that you want to start with the alternator off, A, because there's a a drag on the battery, or I mean, it's robbing power from the starter, but B, because there's the potential for spikes that the alternator could put out when it first comes on that might not be caught by the regulator and you might damage your radios? It could be. Almost all airplanes have an overvolt relay now, which catches things pretty quick. Uh, and the new avionics are way more tolerant. Of and and plus the avionics aren't typically on while you're starting right. the airplane. I, my airplane originally did not have right. an avionics master. So and, that was and that's concerned. where that came from, because we mm-hmm. didn't have avionics masters. Now it's a standard feature. And the avionics were the things that you worry right. about. But, but old avionics tended to be fairly sensitive about what voltage went into them. And new avionics, if, if it's somewhere between 5 and 35 volts, they're happy. You know? Yeah. yeah and, they the only solid, care. And, and the newer regulators are much more res, uh, quicker to respond, right, yeah. in catching those spikes yeah. than the old. We used to. The old vibrating in, contact one. The vibrating yeah. contact carbon <laughs> pile or whatever, yeah. So Back in my avionics days, we used to do a lot of power supply repairs on transponders just for this very reason. Not usually at startup. Mostly it was at shutdown because you'd have um, fields built up in coils. And as the engine shut down, the field would collapse and send a spike through the system. But uh, yeah, nowadays that's, that's very rare. Yeah, I don't know how up to date the 140 is or what kind of avionics you have on that. I do have a radio master switch, so I try to be careful and leave that uh, off until the engine's running and mm-hmm. then 
shut it off before uh, shutting down because of, well, way back in the day, they used to, I got my license in the early 70s. So they, uh, that's what they taught us. Yeah, exactly. And still force of habit, right? Yeah. That's, that's, in, back, in, that's back when they were Mark 12s. Yeah, Mark 12s. With vacuum tubes. tubes. That's right. In my Skybolt, there are two separate switches. The master is one switch. And I always start with just the master because I don't need the alternator and it's not a split switch. And I, most of the time I'm taxiing and I realize that I've got a discharge because <laughs> I haven't turned the alternator on. So you're right. It's nice to just get them both at well, once. Well, the guys with the tractable gear, like on a 210 or an R182, they usually find out uh, that they've left it off when they <laughs> when put they the gear up. Because up. Oh, <laughs> that, that 30 amp is like, boom, it's done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always at night in IFR. The split switch is good because you might want to turn the battery off if you've got some kind of an electrical issue and you, you know, want to shut down power Trou- to things. Troubleshooting, yeah. Make that smoke go away. And also to be able to shut the alternator off in flight to troubleshoot noise in the system that could be due to the alternator is another, or, or an overvoltage condition if you don't have an overvoltage protection. Or something that doesn't smell right. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good place to start. It's a good start. troubleshooting uh, <laughs> mechanism. Okay, yeah, yeah, good. Thank you for that, yeah. Thanks, Robert. Yeah. Yeah, we like the question, Robert. It was fun to, to read up on that. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap on another week. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we would love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you would like us to discuss. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Take the survey at the link in the description as well. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye.